So one thing that we need a segment of our audience to know is that Google has decided they're going to end Google Podcasts. So by March, there will be no more Google Podcasts. So if that's how you listen to our podcast, then you're just going to have to find another platform. We, we can't do anything about it. So you could try, you know, uh, the Apple podcast or Spotify uh, or uh, Amazon and so on. There, there are plenty of YouTube. We're on all those uh, RSS.com. We're on all of those uh, normal platforms. So by uh, the beginning of March, I am sad to say you'll just have to migrate somewhere else. Uh, but I wanted to make sure you knew. I don't know if Google Podcast is letting everyone who listens to it know. So I wanted to make sure that you knew. I'm very happy and excited to let you know that I'm creating another masterclass. This is going to be on what the Book of Mormon teaches us about the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. So I've gone through and looked at all the different ways and times that it talks about the Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit, because this seems to be something President Nelson is really emphasizing. And I'm going to teach a class just on that topic, and it will be on our website, the Enlightened Edge EDU website, which you can get to by going to TSAR, that's the Scriptures Are Real is what it stands for, T-S-A-R dot website, or patreon.com slash Edge EDU. And I think you're going to love this masterclass, so I hope you'll join us there. So I'm so happy to announce that our workshops that we did at Book of Mormon workshops in, in December we're so popular and I've had so many people have asked if we please do more, including people who are there asked if we do more. So we're going to do another Book of Mormon workshop on March 1st and 2nd. We're still determining the venue. It'll be somewhere in Utah County uh, and uh, the Provo Orem area, something along those lines, Lehigh American Fork. And we're going to talk about some of the, the key elements and speeches and sermons of the Book of Mormon. It's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll get prices out to you soon and uh, more details. For now, you can either email the scriptures are real at gmail.com or go to tsar, that's T-S-A-R dot website or patreon.com slash edu. Uh, that's the place where you can start to register and find out details as they come out. So start to look for this. And I think we'll, it will have a Zoom component, but also that in-person component is so wonderful and so fun. And we hope that you'll join us for that. It's going to be really uh, great stuff. We had a wonderful time doing it last time. It really is a pleasure for me and a privilege to be able to introduce uh, S. Kent Brown uh, as our lecturer for tonight. I can tell you a, a little bit uh, about him, uh, did his studies uh, it, or his, his PhD in early Christian studies. Uh, I think technically it was uh, in religious studies, uh, but it was an emphasis in New Testament early Christianity, if I remember right. right. Um, yes. from sorry what yes yeah from brown and before that a degree from berkeley um and uh he's a professor emeritus of uh the uh, of ancient scripture at byu uh where i think you were the department chair at one point am i remembering correctly on that as well correct and then has been both an associate director and director at the byu jerusalem center i'll talk about that some more in a second he was the director of farms for quite a while um Kent was the director of the Jerusalem Center when I went as a student. My wife went, um, and uh, then he was the uh, also directing, or they changed the the structure at that point. But he was the, in essence, the director for us when I went as a teacher for at least a few weeks to kind of get us set up. Um, and uh, that's when I first got to know Kent. But uh, uh, he's done other things. He'll he'll tell you a little bit about the New Testament commentary series that he's uh, done. He uh, it was his brainchild, and he created the Messiah series. What was that documentary series called? Kent? Um, it was called Messiah, Behold the Lamb of God. Yeah, and you can find it 
at messiahjesuschrist.org. Yeah. All one yeah. word, messiahjesuschrist.org. I, it's one of the best, and I think it's seven different lectures, if I remember right, or series. Seven, seven episodes. Episodes. It's one of the best things on the the uh, Christ, the living Christ that I have seen. Just, it, it's incredible. Um, Kent was a, a fellow for the American Research Center in Egypt for a while, spending time in, in Cairo, and I, we could go on and on. Uh, he has just done so many things, such an incredible scholar, and at the same time, such an incredibly kind and gentle and good man. Oh, I should also say he and his wife, Gail, Gail is also wonderful, uh, served a mission in Turkey. And there aren't very many people who can say that. Um, and uh, just, uh, I mean, if if the phrase gentleman and a scholar ever applied to anyone, it applied to Kent Brown. Uh, and if I've ever been around someone who was both an incredible scholar and had a gift for making me feel like I was a better person for having been around them. It's Kent Brown. Uh, I count it as one of the great honors and privileges of my life that uh, I hold what is kind of called the Kent Brown slot at BYU. When he retired, I was hired into his slot. And uh, that has uh, been something I, I won't live up to, but I felt like I'd really need to try to live up to. I, I cannot speak highly enough of, of Dr. Brown. And so with all of that, we'll, you can correct whatever I've said incorrectly, and uh, we'll turn the time over to you, Kent. Well, thank you for being generous. I I do love First Nephi. I have been attracted to this story for a long time, although I have to admit that I haven't spent much time with that, with this story in the last 12 or so years. Um, but let's, I told Carrie that I would hit a few high points and then take us into chapter 16 through 22. Um, one of the things that, at least for me, uh, comes into play is the high density of revelations and inspired dreams that a reader encounters when stepping into First Nephi. And in effect, I as a reader, you as a reader, are faced with a decision. Do I believe this stuff or not? Do I believe that God interacts with his children in such an intense way as, as these chapters point? Um, another important element in this consists of Sariah. She is the engine that makes this thing go. Without her, the whole the whole trek is in trouble. And you and Nephi lets us see enough in the sort of back and forth in the family that we know that. By the time he and his brothers go to Jerusalem for the plates, she's still unsettled. She's not particularly happy to be out in the desert, 260 or so miles away from her home. Um, and there she sits. Let me describe a bit about this. 
The first camp was surely by a running stream of water that is known now from northwest Arabia. It sits in what is called Wadi Taib al-Ism, the Valley of the Good Name. And from up north to down south, there's this long valley that drops from some place up not far from Aqaba, which is the modern Jordanian port city uh, on the Red Sea. And the, the water runs year-round, as far as explorers, Latter-day Saints, have been able to determine. And I expect that from their campsite, there is a place that she walked out to, where she could see up that long valley to the north, looking for her sons. And that she walked out there two, three, maybe four times a day to see if she could see them. Um, and when they didn't show up, I mean, it's at least, at least a week to go back to Jerusalem and a week to come back. Certainly they stopped for Sabbath. And then there's the time in the city. So she begins to complain to her husband. She calls him visionary man. I don't know what we're doing out here, uh, and so on, until her sons come. And when her sons return to camp, by that moment she has received a testimony, a witness of two things. One is that the Lord is inspiring her husband. Second, the Lord has cared for her boys. And for her, that has a good deal of meaning. So she comes on board. Little tiny note. When Lehi left Jerusalem, Nephi says, he didn't take anything with him. Didn't take his gold and his silver. He didn't take property, except, I suppose, baggage animals. But he doesn't say anything about his mother. And I expect when she leaves, the, <clears throat> the jewelry on her wrists, on her neck, in her nose, on her ankles, are with her. And there surely will be times down the trail when an animal will become sick and die, and they have to by another. And so off comes a bracelet, or perhaps two, to pay for that animal. Now, these are gifts that she received, most of these gifts she received, from her husband on their wedding night. So they have deep meaning to her. They are part of her identity as a married woman and as a mother. And so for her to part with any of that kind of thing would have been really difficult. And now she has the witness in her soul, which will allow her to do things that she surely would not do under any other circumstance.
Um, <clears throat> the story fits in Arabia. It does not fit upstate New York. Nobody, well, the, the key to this, <clears throat> there are a couple of keys, actually. The key to this is Lehi's dream. Y'all remember, he finds himself in the dark, and here comes a guide wearing white clothing, walks up to Lehi, says, follow me. So off they go. They walk for hours, we're told, and finally, and Lehi can see this guy. He can see his white cloak. There is enough light from the stars if there is no moon that is bouncing off the light-colored floor of the desert that will illumine this guide who is walking ahead of Lehi. So finally, Lehi despairs and prays. The dawn comes. That's the only way you can explain it, because he can now see. He sees that he's in a big field, and he sees that there's a big plant, a tree, standing off over there, often called, well, said to be white. I'm going to show you a white tree that comes out of National Geographic, 1985, um, and it's a myrrh tree from Yemen. What I'm trying to say to you is that Lehi's dream is certainly a prophetic message to himself about his experience down the trail. And that's one of the pieces of them, that myrrh trees and yum, some myrrh trees are white. Later in chapter 17, verse 13, the Lord will say to Lehi and his party, I will be your light. And you ask yourself, light for what? The desert has so much light, sunlight during the day, we wish we could turn it down. <clears throat> the point is that they travel at night. That's why the Lord is their light. You can say, well, it's metaphorical and spiritual light. Yes, that's true. But we're also talking about hard walking, hard traveling for days on end. Um, here's a little story that uh, those of you who are going to Egypt would like to hear. <clears throat> I was once picked up at the S1 airport by a couple of fellows. I was there to meet a group of travelers who were coming to S1. And <clears throat> so we're driving from the airport into town. And I discovered that one of these two guys was a Bedouin. So I asked him, how far to Abu Simbel? Abu Simbel is this wonderful monument out in the desert, which was saved by the United Nations efforts. And 
It's 180 miles by road from Aswan to Abu Simbel. You can go by vehicle, you can fly, or you can go by like this guy did. And he thought for a few sec seconds and he said, four nights. Now that's telling to a person like me who has spent some time living in the old country. And <clears throat> so he thinks of travel not as Joseph Smith does. You don't hook up your, your horses to the buggy after the sun goes down and expect to be someplace at sunup the next morning. It doesn't happen. Not in Joseph Smith's world, but in Lehi's world, it does. Plus, this is a family trip. You're going to think I'm really crazy for saying this, but when Lehi gets to the tree, partakes of the fruit, says, wow, this is the best stuff I've eaten for a long, long time. Um, he looks and he expects to see, I think, his wife and two younger sons. They have the baggage animals. They're the people who followed Lehi. They've been 50, 100 yards behind him as they've gone through the night. They can see him. They can see his, his walking gait up in front of them as he goes. So they arrive at the stream, and he beckons to them. They come partake. Then he looks for his older two sons. Why them? Because they're the rear guard. Lehi goes in front of this little group as a scout, a protector, and his two older sons, oldest sons, come behind as a rear guard. The pattern is in the first ten chapters of the book of Numbers. If you want to go and check out the order of march of the children of Israel as they move through the desert. Okay, so, <clears throat> besides that, um, he sees this field. That's something you do not typically see in ancient Yemen. Why? Because water was such a premium and you couldn't grow much. Except in a place called Marib, and that's where Lehi and Sariah are heading. They're heading to a place which is now in ancient, in modern Yemen. Um, the, in the days of Lehi and Sariah, a dam was under construction. There was, there was a dam that was built near Mareb, with sluices on two sides of the dam, worked into rock. The dam was earth-filled with stones on the inside to catch the water, so the water didn't wash the, the soil away. Then they allowed water to go out through a series of canals out into the desert, and the, the water, watering power of that dam reached 20 kilometers. 
it was it kept green fields out there for 12 miles 13 miles so you get a sense that lehi is seeing items that he'll say see later okay let's let's come into chapter 16 and we we stumble one of the first things we stumble onto is this round ball of curious workmanship mentioned in verse 10. <clears throat> when Lehi gets up and goes to the tenter's door, as Nephi tells a story, he finds this round ball. You better believe that the round ball is on the inside of the tent flap. It is not on the outside. On the outside, anybody could walk by, pick it up, and claim ownership, including members of the family. I found this belongs to me. <clears throat> it's on the inside of the tent flap. That's where Lehi will discover it. Somebody set it inside there, doubtless reached under the tent flap, did not walk into the tent. That's where Lehi and Sri are sleeping. I expect it was a heavenly messenger who dropped this off. And it was probably made in Anthony's brass shop. Well, who's that? Well, it's the name I just said of somebody in the celestial world who actually has skills, metallic skills, who can build such a device that can be the receptacle of divine powers. It's not just an inert piece thing here uh, in my saddle bag. There, there are pointers on it, and the Nephi and others learn quickly that the pointers pointed the direction they should go. In addition to that, later in a scene after the broken bow, after Nephi breaks his bow, writing appears apparently on some kind of panel or on one of the surfaces of this round ball, writing which tells us that they could, they were literate, <clears throat> they could read and write. So, so you have somebody in the heavens designing a piece that will fit in the mortal world and is subject to God's guidance. Of course, later on, it's called Leahona. There's also something about the traveling party going to the most fertile, most fertile parts of the, of the, um, of the desert. These, it seems to me, are the oases <clears throat> Modern studies have determined that coming along the Red Sea coast, you're, you're talking about soil that is quite poor. It doesn't grow much, and there's not a lot of evidence people did farming along that coastline in antiquity. You might have fished. But farming was not, not something big. 
So they're probably traveling on the east side of the Al-Sarat Mountains. It's a mountain range that runs from basically southern Jordan all the way down to the Arabian Sea. Uh, <clears throat> there were half dozen passes that went through those mountains that people could negotiate to go back and forth from the interior east side to the other side, the seaside on the west. And that's where the oases are. They're on the east side of the mountain chain. And there's so Lehi, Sriya, and their family traveling group are going from one, one uh, oasis to the next, where they can get water, they can rest, they can they can sort of take their bearings and then launch off into the next uh, the next part of the trip. As you know, the family goes through a number of crises. One of those crises occurs when not, when Ishmael dies. Um, this this is a tough thing on the family, and you can almost hear the voices of his daughters. In fact, Nephi will quote the things they say. Some of the daughters think they're, they're in the wrong place and they need to go back home. You say to yourself, well, you're almost 400 miles south of the, of the base camp. Why do you want to go back? Because they've met other people. This is one of those evidences that they know they can get back to Jerusalem because they've met travelers, caravaneers, who are carrying incense up the trail, starting in Oman, coming through Arabia, up the trail to Petra, Nabataean kingdom, into Egypt, north into Jerusalem, beyond that into Damascus. And in centuries later, an enormous amount of this incense was feeding the appetite of Rome. Um, so they know to go back. And that's, that's one of those tiny things that makes it clear that old Joe Smith didn't have any had no clue about what was really going on. The chapter 17, in verse 1, Nephi tells us that they made an eastward turn. There's nobody who knows about this eastward turn, except those who made it. A guy by the name of Ptolemy wrote a geography, a book, a set of books, on ancient geography that dates back to about 150 AD. And he drew maps to go with his geography, one of which was Arabia Felix, called Arabia Felix, that is the happy Arabia. And um, there's a copy of his geography 
which has a map in it of Arabia Felix, which was copied in, see, I'll get my dates correct here. It was copied in 1460 AT with a map of Arabia. And that map shows the east turn. But that, that book and its map were held in Europe. It was eventually sold to the uh, New York Public Library in 1892 by a British book dealer. It came to New York. The library finally published the book and its map uh, 40 years later, 1932, way, way, way too late for Joseph Smith to have consulted it or anybody else in that, for that matter. Nobody would have known about the eastward turn in Joseph Smith's day, but in Lehi's day, they did. <clears throat> Now you have to decide how we're going to get to a town called Shapwa. <clears throat> There's a big wide wadi or valley that runs from up west to down east and heads into a part of the desert that has dunes. The problem, if you're going to make a jump, across that wadi and the dunes to Shapwa, the city that's waiting over there for you, you have 120 miles without wells. Nephi in chapter 17, verse 1, the same verse that he talks about turning east, he also mentions the births of the first children. So, at least two, maybe three of the new brides are pregnant or have given birth in recent days or weeks. And you have to decide how rough are we going to make it. They can do a loop, sort of southeast and then up northeast, where there are wells about 30 miles apart as you go around the loop to finally reach Shapua. Shapua is the jump-off point. Beyond that place, there, <clears throat> there are basically no laws. Um, you're you're um, out there on your own, and that's certainly what Lehi and Sri and their friends of, and their family would have soon found. You ask the question, why does it take eight years to go across this desert? And <clears throat> the answer is we don't know for sure. Because caravans coming from Oman doing the reverse trip up to the Mediterranean are covering the, that same trek in four weeks. The caravaneers, the camels, move. Um, 
So, so you have to figure out why. I, for myself, and I published this in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, I found clues both in First Nephi and in Second Nephi that that point to at least a time or two or three that the family of Lehi was in servitude. That is, they went across South Arabia, they kept crossing tribal lands that were owned and claimed by tribes. And so, um, so they have to deal with tribal leaders and tribal leaders may have insisted that they stay and and work for them and so on. And of course, they're also carrying stuff like seeds from Jerusalem and the, and the sword of Laban and the ball. And all of those things need to be hidden. So you, if you run into tribe members, you have to somehow bury what is so most valuable, uh, at least to them. Uh, they'll be valuable items. I suspect that that's part of the reason why it took so long to go across there. There, there are wells. Let me just say that if you go across southern Yemen heading towards Oman, sort of going northeast, east-northeast, there are the dunes on the north, which rise to 700 feet. And there are tablelands to the south. It's, a, it's tablelands 30, 40, 50 miles of of these uh, of these flat flat terrain places that are cut by by wadis cut by by these deep clefts valleys and if you climb up the side of one of those things finally get up there with your animals and family and so on you go for a few miles and then you have to drop right straight down into another valley, only to climb back up the other side. There was a place between that sort of geographical feature and the dunes that you could sort of go between. But all of that territory is claimed by tribes. I suspect that Lehi and Sarai and their party went into the dunes or into the valleys of the tableland to hide from time to time when they were told to do so by the round ball, the compass. Um, and you can't cross the dunes. They rise to 700 feet in the Rubal Khali, the empty quarter of Saudi Arabia. You go up 700 feet and you get to the top and you don't know what's on the other side, where there's a straight drop off or whether it's kind of a sloping thing. And it's taken you half the day to get up there with your animals and your children and everything else. And you step and you lose a half step and you step and you lose two steps and you're still trying to get up on top of this thing. Because 
It's the wind that carves these dunes. And the winds go from southwest to northeast in the summer, and in the winter they turn and go exactly the opposite way, northeast to southwest. So those dunes are constantly being sculpted by the wind. So I suspect Lehi and Shariah go between the tablelands on the south and the dunes on the north and try to find their way. And as you know, when they finally reach the edge of the desert and come up over the last rise and they can look and they see green trees and vegetation from where they stand to the edge of the sea. You can almost hear them singing as they descend and come to the shore. <clears throat> it was, it must have been a spectacular experience for them to come to the seashore uh, and find there was fruit growing on trees and on bushes and so on. And they also figured out how to find wild honey. There are mountains that line the coast of southern Oman into southern Yemen. And these mountains are limestone, so it means they're subject to water erosion. And you can find caves inside the, the cliffs. The cliffs drop almost straight down for hundreds of feet. I remember with a guide once in Oman, who was with us from the Ministry of, of um, of tourism, <clears throat> he told me that when he was a young person, he and his friends would watch, they'd look into caves. When they see, when they saw a bee go in there, they knew there was honey. So they'd get on the top of the cliff, rappel down into the cave, get as much honey and buckets and so on as they could, and then go back up. He told me he once got a hundred stings uh, in one episode, which is pretty high price to pay tools. <clears throat> after, Lehi, after Nephi receives instructions from the Lord about building a boat, a ship, he, he of course knows immediately he needs tools. He and his family brought some tools, of course, but they didn't bring those kinds of tools um, to shape wood and all that sort of thing and to drill holes and so on. BYU geologists visited southern Oman and they came upon two deposits of iron ore, one on the, one on the west and one on the east of what's called the Dofar area, which is this whole spread of southern Oman along the coast. They found iron ore which could be worked. Um, <clears throat> we dealt with this in our documentary film called Journey of Faith. Um, 
you can get access to, we've made two. One is called Journey of Faith. The other is called Journey of Faith, the New World. You go to a website called journeyoffaithfilms.com. Journey of Faith Films, S, plural, dot com. Um, <clears throat> you can also just Google Journey of Faith documentary film or something. It'll, it'll eventually get you there. So, um, we dealt with the issue of tools. If they had gone 100 kilometers to the north, up to what's called the um, Persian Gulf, there were deposits of copper there. There were known in antiquity. But that's a long way to go for, for metal that you can't harden or that's difficult to harden. So it's much easier to get iron ore right next to the coast. And we have a scene of, of Rebel Phillips, who was then a, an emeritus professor of geology at BYU, sitting next to this extrusion of iron ore up to the surface, tapping it with his, with his geology hammer, not off pieces, and telling us that Nephi could come here, get a couple of uh, donkey saddlebags full of, of ore, take him back to camp, start his fire, and make tools. Um, so that's how it came about. And they were in the right place at the right time. Nephi even says, especially of the botanical wonders that they found there. He said, the Lord had prepared all this for us. And I expect that's the case also with the geology. Well, you might recall in chapter 17 that there's this big kerfuffle between Nephi and his brothers about building a ship. Uh, of course, after the Lord has contacted him and told him he needs to build a ship, um, <clears throat> Nephi announces it to his family members and and to the Ishmaels, and there's this big fight uh, over doing this. Nephi, in effect, half ascribes it to the laziness of his brothers. But, but he, he is intent on doing this, and they just make fun of it. They say, you don't have the skills, you don't have the wherewithal, you, you can't build anything like this. And you have to understand that in their world, a ship or a boat was the most complex thing that people could make. It took a lot of skills to put these boats together. And they're saying, you don't have any of that Nephi, sorry. Well, um, he comes back. This is where he rehearses the story of the Exodus and God guiding Moses and so on, and the children of Israel putting up a stink and 
turning their backs on Moses and turning their backs on God and so on. And he said, yet it happened. And the, the one who was faithful to it was Moses and the one who was guiding him was God. And if Moses can bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and cross the Red Sea on dry ground through the Sinai Peninsula and so on, it has to be that God can guide me too. And remember that the Lord had some fun with these. He says, Nephi, stretch out your hand towards your brothers and I'll shock them. So Nephi did hit them. From that point on, they were happy to help. They even were going to worship him. And Nephi said, no, 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 no. I'm just your brother. Don't do any of this sort of thing. It was it was this wondrous time. Um, part of our journey of faith film deals with this. And we've got a guy on camera who is a historian of ancient science who teaches at a university in the eastern part of the United States who talked about the possible way to build this, this ship. One of the things that occurred to me while doing reading for this evening was the fact that when the Lord inspired Nephi to build a ship not after the manner of men, right. because there, there was coming rough seas. The Lord anticipated the ill temper of Nephi's brothers and what they would do on the open sea and how he would get their attention. He couldn't let Nephi build a ship based on the model of what he could see around him from time to time. The ships and boats that went along the coast of Oman, what is modern Oman, would go in every night, tie up at some kind of port or something else onto a bunch of rocks, stay the night out into the ocean during the, during sun time and stay close to shore and then go in at night. That kind of boat, that kind of ship would have been beaten to pieces in heavy seas. So the Lord instructs Nephi how to build an ocean-going vessel. That's the key here, because there will come this time when there is a huge tempest trying to get the attention of the older brothers, which the Lord succeeds in doing. But it's, but it's that he has shown Nephi how to, how to build such a boat. Um, as you know, as time goes on, the Nephites kept a maritime tradition. They built boats. The Lamanites scuttled the whole thing for some reason. And so they're always locked into land travel to try to get at the Nephite enemy. And the, 
if they just had known how to build boats, they would have been fine. They could have sailed around the Nephites and come from the other side. But they didn't. They simply eschewed maritime travel on ship. Uh, so there's that which is ahead of us in the Book of Mormon. When finally they get to the New World, um, you know that they're happy to be off the ship. They're happy to have something solid underneath them. We're told that they planted the seeds that they had brought with them, and that the, the seeds grew um, into grains and other kinds of things. <clears throat> we were never told what kind of seeds Lehi and his company brought, but Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 8, it's easy to remember, 8, 8, tells us the seven kinds of plants that used to grow in ancient Canaan. And it included barley and wheat, um, grapes, pomegranates. Um, there are a couple more that I'm forgetting. But the, 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 there are seven different plants that yielded fruit. Oh, yes, all the trees. <clears throat> so that you get not only olives, but also olive oil, which is food and a, and a um, source of light and heat. So <clears throat> it's something from that collection of plants that comes with Lehi. They plant them, they grow, there's a harvest. They take a certain percentage of the next seeds that are produced in the harvest, and they plant those the second year. Um, I'm not going to go too far down this street because I know people have feelings about this, but the, the kinds of plants that Lehi brings with him, the seeds from the plants that Lehi brings with him, flourish in a dry environment, not, not one that is infused with humidity. Um, and that's a hint, if you want to take it, to where Lehi, Sri, and their party landed, whether on the East Coast or West Coast. Um, okay, so we're running out of time. <clears throat> Carrie said, up to an hour, so we're going to maybe hit that. Um, chapter 19, beginning with the first seven, running for four verses to verse 10, gives to us one of the most important prophecies about the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. And Nephi recognizes that the, that the Jews of Jerusalem 
or crucify the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. But they will turn their backs on this person, on this Lord God who has been with them all these centuries, and they will treat him in that awful way. That's in chapter 19. By the way, chapter 19, oh, excuse me, just before um, <clears throat> Nephi begins to quote the two chapters out of Isaiah, Isaiah 48 and 49, he says that Isaiah and other prophets prophesied concerning us. That's in verse 21, 1921. Later in um, chapter 22, when he's talking about the lessons that he learns from these Isaiah chapters, he says that Isaiah meaneth us. So he saw, that's in chapter 22, verse 6. So 1921-22-6. It seems as though he's saying to us, that he saw himself and his people as being the objects of prophecy. And there are hints at that. Uh, we're, we're told in Isaiah that he leadeth them through the deserts. He takes them to fresh waters and so on. That all of this is part of the guidance that that Nephi and his people experienced as they traveled through the desert. Okay. By the way, chapter 20 is quite negative about Jerusalem's citizens, Israelites of the time, and chapter 21 is very positive about Israel's future. Um, and Nephi sees things in these two chapters that I don't see, but he saw them somehow. Let me give you two, two examples. One is the fall of the abominable church. And I've read those two chapters carefully, and I say, I didn't see that, but he did. He also saw that Satan's loss of power, that that was coming. That's in the future yet. And he saw that somehow growing out of those two chapters. Well, <clears throat> Nephi probably knew this, but also chapter 49, the first six verses, are one of the servant songs that has been identified in the later chapters of Isaiah. Um, I can send to Carrie, if you want, the References, Gary probably already knows all this stuff. There are four servant songs that show up beginning in uh, chapter 42 of Isaiah. The last one starts in chapter 52, verse 13, and runs to the end of chapter 13. I'm sorry, 53. Um, and, and we cite it, think of it. Uh, as pointing to the suffering Christ. Uh, 
Okay. Now, my, my sense about First Nephi is that it's a compelling story. It rests on two documents. One is Nephi's document. The other one is his father's his father's um, chronicle. He tells us in a couple of places that his dad kept track of things and wrote them down, his prophecies, their journeys, all this sort of thing. This is part of what was lost to Joseph Smith in the 116 pages. Um, but here we have this wondrous story of faith and trust in the Lord and the Lord trusting them to persist, to keep going, even though it was hard and daunting, and it it was it was a kind of journey that required everything of everyone, especially Nephi, and I suspect Sam too. And certainly we learn later that Jacob and Joseph were schooled by this experience and came out the other side as extraordinary men. Um, my witness to you is that it comes from God. I don't have one of those big cow experiences hitting me and saying, yes, it's just when I start reading the Book of Mormon, it's like reading, listening to a symphony. I can hear the music playing, and it's extraordinary stuff. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, thank you, Kent. That was, that's beautiful and wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, so, and I'll just... Uh, Let's see here. I, I turned around and found my my DVDs uh, of the uh, the Messiah, oh, Behold the Lamb of God, um, right. which reminded me that uh, we wanted to ask you to tell us about the books behind you there. Okay, so behind me, um, I'll light them a bit here. Oh, that just washes them out. We can't see them. No, we can't see them because it's too bright. Um, are seven volumes of about 24 that will eventually appear. These are from the New Testament called the BYU New Testament Commentary. Uh, the volumes are out for Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians. I wrote Luke and Ephesians. Hebrews and Revelation. The next one that will appear will probably appear by the end of February. It's our introduction to the whole series. And we've shamelessly called it Essential Tools for Understanding the New Testament. Among other things in that volume, John Gee deals with what's called textual criticism. And he takes up the issue of the loss of plain and precious things and goes to half a dozen 
passages in the New Testament which through the history of the text of the New Testament show loss. Not just little loss, like a, like a conjunction here and an adverb there, but loss of principle or, or doctrine. Um, so that's to come out. Then the ninth one in the series will appear, will appear probably at the end, by the end of the summer. And that's the Thessalonian correspondence, first and second Thessalonians treated in one volume. Though that that pair is currently going through uh, source checking to make sure that the citation of sources is accurate. We want to give to our readers the most accurate picture that we can uh, based on our research and careful thought. Uh, wonderful. Thank you. So someone's asking if you could just show the picture uh, or show the, the cover of the book so that we can see um, what it looks like. Tell us where we can find these. And then uh, we'll, I mean, the, the advantage of doing this live as opposed to on the podcast or something is that we can ask some questions. So if you have time for some questions, then we will do so that. Okay. Here is the here is the cover for Ephesians. What you see on here is the uh, image at dusk of the uh, library of Celsus at Ephesus, yeah. which, which nobody sees at that time of day. Uh, I was invited in by a group who were meeting in the evening with special permission. So of course I took photos. Hmm. Um, we also see from the facade of this this library, Library of Celsus, four female figures. This is the figure of Sophia, wisdom, which is on the front of this library. And this is a photo that I took. And the other one is the um, is the huge theater there which seated up to 25,000 people in Ephesus. So that's, that gives you an idea visually we wanted to show Ephesus. And there's a photo of me on the inside, standing inside of the theater, talking to people about what they're looking at. So it's wonderful. That was fun stuff. When Where can you find them? Just online or? Okay. Um, BYU Studies is the publisher. Mm. You can also go to Deseret Book. Um, I would say if you have a bookstore near you, Deseret Book or uh, something else, go in and order the book and have it come to you without much cost for uh, for shipping. They also should be available at Amazon. All right. So Thank you. If you if you look for Richard Draper or me, my name, you should find those books. Thank you. Do you have time for a couple of questions? Sure. All right. So people could either unmute or raise their hand or use the chat feature or whatever you'd like.
question for you. This is um, the Stringhams. Um, oh. I had always wondered um, and had the theory, and I don't know how to prove it, but um, other than what you just talked about, that Lehi was a spice trader and that that's how he had, you know, such extensive wealth, such extensive knowledge of going through all of these spice trades and knowing the different routes and the different people to go and not go in because there were a lot of people that would rob people out there. And uh, so he would know kind of the ways to go so that he could avoid those and also the insights so he could get, you know, different kinds of supplies and things like that. But is there any evidence of that, like in Jerusalem, that the, he was wealthy and that he was of the spice trade? I I suspect that he was a person of means um, and that that he, he had plenty of money that when Nephi said that he left behind his jewelry and so on, it was a substantial connect, collection for this man. Um, how he acquired it is harder to say. Spices are certainly a possibility. Metals, by the way, in First Nephi are mentioned seven times. So some have guessed that he might have been a metal merchant. Um, Nephi recognizes the very fine work of Laban's sword when he pulls it out of its scabbard. Um, and there are other times that Nephi will describe the ball of curious workmanship, but it seems as though he's thinking, this is pretty, this is pretty cool stuff. Um, so it, he also could have had extensive um, animals, flocks, herds, but we don't hear much about that. We have to that he had, had access to this thing in order to move his goods, his tents and so on, out of Jerusalem and onto the trail. But um, nothing firm. Thank you. Other questions? That was cool. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I just oh, need to say thank you so much for sharing with us the Journey of Faith collection. I purchased that CD way back when you um, first made it available, and I've loved it. I shared it with family, friends, and didn't know how to get it back because I lost it. <laughs> Someone didn't return it, so I, I really enjoyed that. So I just highly recommend that to everyone. Thank you so much for all of your work, Dr. Brown. Our, our judgment about that journey of faith was that if someone was a tiny bit curious about the Latter-day Saints, watching that would give them more reason to be curious. So we heard that a couple of, a couple of missions adopted it as as an item that could be shown to investigators so oh wonderful uh so we have on the chat the question what kind of boats were there before nephi built the one from god well as i mentioned they were pretty lightweight craft what is known about them is, is that they were craft that that carried goods they they were used for 
transporting items from one place to another, but they're lightweight enough that that they had to go in at night. There was no way that you could guarantee that your night vision would be good enough to keep you off some kind of rocky shoal along the coast. So they went in during the night and then came back out in the morning. Uh, some of them were flat-bottomed. I don't know of many that were round-bottomed. Um, we'd have to actually ask somebody who knew who knew more about it. Um, I would I think that from roughly the same era, you you have Athenian ships whose whose um, whose whose that have been pulled up out of the Mediterranean Sea and other places that show something of round bottom birth, the, the pieces that go around have been bent. That, that takes a lot of energy to bend, to bend some kind of a, um, some kind of a, a long piece of timber into a U-shape that would then fit as the inside structure to to planks that went along the outside of these U-shaped pieces, uh, but I but I think that the Greeks were experimenting with that pretty soon after Lehi's time. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm just not that well acquainted with. With um, with maritime practice, and especially on the south coast of Arabia, except to know that all those crafts, all those craft, were lightweight and weren't meant to go out into the ocean and and face heavy seas. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, so one person has asked if you could show the the Yemen tree again and explain when it's white. Yeah, <clears throat> it's simply a sample that I ran across years ago of, there's a fellow who's harvesting the, um, the myrrh that's on this tree. And um, the thing that struck me was the color of this thing. Yeah. And that... Nephi and Lehi had both said something about the color of, of the tree, and one of them said something about the fruit, that it was white as the driven snow. And you ask yourself, well, how would Nephi know that? Because he's living in, this, in the wind stream of the Mediterranean Sea, which basically warms, warms air up as it goes across the sea. And the answer is, every five or six years, there's a snowstorm in Jerusalem. Yeah. You can bet on it. Yeah, I've been there <laughs> when it's happened. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, we have at least one more question on uh, the chat. 
I've always wondered about Nephi's sisters who went with him when the family split. Why wouldn't Nephi mention them before? Yeah. Um, he may have assumed them as wives of the sons of Ishmael. If, if that's in fact the case, because those sons brought families with them, uh, if that's the case, then Nephi is assuming in his narrative their presence. But he finally mentions them in 2 Nephi, it's about chapter 5, I think, who mentions sisters um, who, who must have had a difficult time making a decision to go with Laman and Lemuel on their little group or to go with Nephi and his group. Certainly that would have faced Sariah. Lehi is gone. I suspect that Sariah is alive when those two parts of the family split. And so she, she is, is faced with a tough, tough decision. By the way, um, I invite you to read 2 Nephi chapter 9. And see if it doesn't look like a funeral sermon that Jacob <laughs> is giving for someone and who more dear to his soul than his mother. Hmm. So, anyway. Interesting. God. That's an interesting thought. Huh. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Brown. We are really, really grateful for the time that you've spent and uh, just uh, all, all the years that you've put into researching this and then the time you've spent with us tonight. Thank you. And uh, we hope everyone has a great evening. Thanks for the invitation, Brother Kerry. And thank you all for your kind attention.